0: ocean bites out loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world we hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way everyone. Welcome back to another part of the kelp episode. Today. We have another amazing scientist with us. So we've kind of looked at the macro scale whole ecosystem processes. But today we're gonna to look a little bit deeper into kelp itself. So for our listeners, can you please tell us your name
1: and your pronouns? Uh, my name is Jordan Bemmels, and I use he him pronouns.
0: Great, Thank you, Jordan. So can you tell us what you're currently
1: researching about kelp? I'm studying the genomics of two of British Columbia's canopy-forming kelp species. Uh, Those include giant kelp and bull kelp. Uh, So giant kelp, uh, otherwise known as Macrocystis pyrifera, is a kelp species that's found on British Columbia's outer coast, so on the west coast of Vancouver Island and northern BC. If you want to imagine what this one looks like, it's got sort of the classic kelp look. Uh, if you're thinking about pictures, you might have seen of kelp forests where it's very tall, a lot of branches. And then bull kelp, the other one is or also called Neurocystis luetkeana, is found uh, throughout BC waters in both the outer coast and more inner areas, such as the Salish Sea. And this one's got more of a long single stalk and then a collection of little fronds at the top so it kind of looks like an underwater elongated palm tree in some sense. (laughs) And uh, we're sequencing the genomes of more than 600 individuals of these kelp species from across BC and Washington. And our main goal is to generate genetic knowledge and genomic resources um, about these species and their populations to be able to incorporate a genetic perspective into conservation, restoration, and management. Some of this info may also be potentially useful for the up-and-coming aquaculture industry that's kind of undergoing a lot of research now or interest. But I'll just emphasize that's not uh, one of the current goals of of our work. Um, We're more focused on the, the conservation.
0: It sounds like there's a story behind how you got interested in this. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you got interested in researching the genomics of kelp?
1: I'm relatively new to this. I only um, joined the current team uh, working on this project about a year ago. I came in with a background in conservation genetics and population genetics. For example, I had done my PhD studying um, using genomics to study range shifts in uh, tree species in response to climate change, and two other postdocs where I did research on things like using genetics to predict how plants would genetically adapt to climate change, and studying conservation genomics of kiwi birds from New Zealand. So I actually did not come with a marine background, um, but I approached this from being really interested in using genetic knowledge to understand sort of the history of different species and populations and then what we can do to help uh, conserve and manage them. Super excited to be working with kelp in particular because there's almost, Well, there's very little genetic knowledge about kelp. It hasn't been as well studied as many other of the important species around the world. So everything is really new and exciting. And it's my first time working with a a marine species as well.
0: That is incredible. I mean, I don't know anything about kiwi birds, but I've heard they're cute. Other than that, (laughs) I couldn't tell you. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit more about how genetics and learning about the genome of kelp, how does that help you conserve kelp for the future?
1: Yeah, so there's kind of three main areas that we're looking at for trying to use genetics to conserve kelp. And I can talk for a while about uh, each of these, but um, the first one is to understand the genetic relationships among different kelp populations. Uh, the second one is to assess the genetic health of different populations. And then the third is to understand impa- uh, patterns of environmental adaptation uh, across the, the province. So uh, for the first one I mentioned about understanding genetic relationships, uh, what that means is trying to figure out which populations are most closely related to one another. and. Uh, looking for example, are there any genetically distinct populations or are they all very similar? Uh, This is useful for conservation of kelp. For example, we may find a population that's really genetically different than the others, and then that would be a high priority for uh, conservation. Uh, It can also help managers uh, with setting guidelines about which populations are similar and they want to sort of manage together as a coherent unit versus um, other areas where the kelp appear to be genetically different. And then they might require a separate management plan, for example. And it can also inform information about uh, translocations or the movement of kelp genetic material from one area to another, which might be a tool that um, currently is not being used so much, but is uh, there's a lot of research going into that. And it could help, for example, if a marine heat wave comes through and knocks out a population or uh, really sets back the population, we might want to, for example, um, supplement it or replace it with other individuals to help it out from somewhere else. And we need to know uh, where we should get those individuals from. For the second uh, way that we're using genetics to help conserve kelp is assessing genetic health. This includes mostly looking at genetic diversity and inbreeding rates. Uh, and these are important parameters to monitor, especially in small populations that might become threatened in the future. Um, so genetic diversity is just refers to how much v- genetic variation there is in a population. And this is important because it's sort of the toolbox that... Um, a population has available to use to adapt to future um, challenges that might occur. And inbreeding, or it's important because it can lead to inbreeding depression. And so inbreeding is when individuals that are related to one another will interbreed and um, produce offspring. And their offspring might have uh, lower genetic diversity because they um, inherit similar material, genetic material from both parents and they can inherit recessive uh, variants that don't show up when the parents have just one of those variants, but then if they get it from both of the parents together, it can lead to disease. So we wanna monitor that as well. And then finally, the third thing I mentioned was understanding patterns of environmental adaptation. So in in many different wild species, um, populations are best adapted to their local conditions and they're less well adapted to conditions that occur uh, elsewhere in the species range. And so we want to try to understand if this is happening in kelp and which environmental factors might be driving patterns of adaptation. So is it things like the sea surface temperature, the salinity, uh, nutrient concentrations, and then which genes and genetic variants are involved? And this is important for conserving kelp because or we predict that there's going to be a lot of change in the ocean conditions in the future, especially related to climate change. And uh, we can make predictions about which populations are going to be better or more poorly suited to those future conditions. And this can allow us to identify if there are specific populations that we think are going to be really at risk and not have the right genetic composition to thrive in the future, and then perhaps make management plans um, developed around helping those ones out. This is
0: incredible. I had no idea there was so much behind what's going on with genetic diversity in kelp. So you've talked about how genetic diversity is really important for protecting kelp populations against disease and changing environmental factors. What does this look like in practice? How would you Encourage genetic diversity within kelp populations that might be vulnerable?
1: Well, there's actually perhaps two different uh, lines of thinking on that. Um, So, if we're thinking about wanting to protect genetic diversity just of what is already existing there within the population, one thing is to make sure that the populations remain large and robust. Uh, And the reason for this is. Uh, there's a lot of genetics theories and empirical evidence that shows that small populations tend to lose genetic diversity by a process called genetic drift, um, just at random. Um, and so when we keep the populations larger, the effects of this um, tend to be be smaller. So genetic drift refers to um, sort of changes in the uh, frequencies of different genetic variants in a population over time due to random chance, or sometimes called the sampling effect. So it's kind of similar if you imagine you had um, a gumball machine full of different pieces of candy of different colors, and then you um, only some of those individuals or pieces of candy are going to pull out um, and pretend that they're going to reproduce and create the next uh, generation. Um, if you just turn the gumball machine a couple times to pick who are you, who's going to like be the parents in this pretend example, uh, you aren't going to get an exactly representative mm-hmm. of exactly the frequency of each different color or type of candy. So it's the same with um, genetic variation. The individuals that reproduce from one generation to the next don't exactly represent the what was there um, in the parents' generation. And so the genetic variation can change. Another uh, potential avenue is ensuring that there are connectivity maintained between different populations. So if you have two populations that have historically been Um, in contact with one another, and they can exchange genetic variation between them. And then if something happens, like habitat change or like urban or industrial development that cuts that off, then that will prevent them from sharing their genetic uh, variation as well, and it could over time lead to a loss of genetic diversity. Um, And then the second thing I mentioned, sort of a contrasting opinion, is that um, we're also thinking a bit, especially in terms of adaptive genetic variation that I talked about in, with that third point, that would be more of a human-mediated um, conservation action. But I'll emphasize that that's just sort of an idea for right now, and it's hasn't been implemented yet and would require a lot of policies and uh, discussions with stakeholders. And uh, it wouldn't be something that, like, my research is... Ex- exactly doing, but we're kind of creating the knowledge that could make that possible.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing. I mean, it's super exciting to think about how your research is going to impact future management decisions and help to conserve these vulnerable ecosystems. So now I kind of want to ask you a little bit more about the nitty gritty of your research. Have you personally collected kelp or do you mostly just work in the lab with kelp species?
1: I have personally collected only one single kelp population, (laughs) which was in Victoria, (laughs) that um, I did with some colleagues to see how it was done. But um, I'm not one of the field biologists on the team, so um, I feel very fortunate that we we do have a lot of skilled field biologists that have gone out and collected these and sent them uh, back to me, or also collaborators that have um, volunteered their time as well.
0: Well, I mean, you've been out in the field, so I think that counts. You're, you're a field biologist. <laughs> so, since you mostly spend a lot of time in the lab, for our listeners, can you walk us through what a day in the lab might look like for you while you're
1: sequencing the kelp genome? When I'm doing the, the lab work portion of my work, this is sort of what you might think of the stereotypical scientist in a white lab coat holding a pipette, that that would be what I look like, sometimes working in a a fume hood uh, for protection from uh, dangerous chemicals. The kelp is stored in sort of a small little uh, piece of tissue that's um, desiccated, meaning the water has been completely removed. And so it's like a dry kind of like potato chip texture, and that will preserve the DNA. First, we need to extract the DNA from that, this involves grinding up the tissue, getting the DNA out, doing a lot of different things to remove impurities, so that we get just pure DNA and water is our ideal situation. And then after that, we'll um, uh, we can use um, uh, commercially available kits to what's called library preparation, and this means getting the DNA ready to be sequenced. So. We uh, cut it up into small little bits so that it's a manageable size. Uh, we attach little tiny barcodes um, to keep track of which sample is which, and then we combine um, all of those together from different individuals and ship them off to a sequencing company that will sequence the DNA sequences uh, for us and and send us back those data.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. I mean, all this stuff happening behind the scenes is just like mind-blowing to me. And all the work that goes into sequencing the genome sounds like there's a lot going on. <laughs> so I'm also curious, have you have you found anything other than kelp DNA <laughs> when you've been sequencing the kelp DNA? <laughs>
1: Um, I would uh, predict that there's almost undoubtedly some other organisms' DNA in there in small amounts. So many different organisms might grow on the surface of kelp. Um, We try to avoid that if possible. We don't want to use tissue that looks like there's something else on it. But I haven't actually checked that. Um, What we typically get with is kind of sorting things into kelp or not kelp.
0: Yeah, I was just curious because, you know, if there's something like a fungal infection or some type of other viral infection, I don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, those would probably <laughs> definitely be there. Uh, someone might find, find that that useful in the future.
0: So we've talked about your lab work that you do, you know, looking like a stereotypical scientist in the lab. What happens after that? You mentioned shipping off your sequences. What happens once you get those sequences back?
1: Yeah. So after we get the sequences back, then that sort of begins the second main um, activity that I do in the lab, which is bioinformatics. And this refers to using computer programs and writing computer code to actually analyze the data. And the reason this is um, important is because we get a huge amount of data when we sequence these kelp individuals. Um, So each individual kelp genome has about 600 million base pairs. Um, so base pairs are like, sometimes you might see it represented in, as a DNA molecule as like an A, T, C, or a G if you're familiar with DNA. But there's 600 million different ones in each individual kelp. We sequence each kelp 15 times over to make sure we aren't making mistakes. Um, and so we get billions of data points per individual. Um, And so to analyze that, we typically do our work by remotely logging into a supercomputer that has far more computational power than the typical laptop. Uh, Analyses that might take years to complete on my laptop, um, we can do in just a week or so on the supercomputer. The, The goal here is to, I mentioned before that we cut the DNA into manageable size pieces. So major goal is to put the pieces back together and figure out where they are uh, along each individual's genome. And then once we do that, we can start looking for the things I mentioned previously, like the genetic diversity and similarities and differences between different populations.
0: Whoa. So after just doing some quick math in my head, does that amount to like 90 billion base pairs that you have to go through, or even more, (laughs) like what?
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah, I haven't quite done the math, but that sounds about right. <laughs> and we, ha- we are planning to sequence like six to seven hundred individuals as well, so it's a massive amount of data. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah, I can't even do the math in my head on that one. <laughs> so, can you tell me a little bit more about this
1: supercomputer that you have? So basically, like, like I mentioned. Uh, like the kelp genome is like 600 million base pairs long. But when we do the sequencing, we cut it into pieces about like between one to 300 base pairs long. So they're very small. So it's kind of like doing a gigantic puzzle where you have like so many tiny little pieces and you have what's called a reference genome. So um, somebody will have figured out what like one good example of the genome looks like. And then you have to sort of map your little puzzle pieces back to assemble um, a new genome for the individual that you just sequenced.
0: It sounds like the computing power is absolutely massive (laughs) on that. But luckily, you have access to it. And so then that's what informs your research, right?
1: Uh, Yes, yeah, mostly. doing all those n- number crunching and analyses is is the end, um, what we get out. There's not a whole lot of uh, tangible things that you can really <laughs> see from it. So it's all um, kind of behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, but still, hey, somebody has to run the computer. So <laughs> I mean, it's pretty incredible to me. What is something that you have found exciting within
1: your research so far? We're still at the very preliminary stages of analyzing our data. So we haven't reached a ton of conclusions yet, but we are starting to see, um, just from the little bit we've gotten of data we have so far, some differences around Vancouver Island. So it looks like the populations really are genetically differentiated, and they're not just um, all identical. We also do see, so far, major differences in genetic diversity among different populations some populations that are more isolated than others. And so far, one pattern that seems to be emerging is that um, small populations that are sort of way up in the deep fjords tend to have Mm -hmm. lower genetic diversity and be more different than other populations. And this sort of makes sense because we think that they would have a lot less connectivity than the populations that are out more on the main part of the coast and have a lot more connections with others.
0: Very cool. I mean, I personally haven't thought about all the different populations that are that we would find here in BC, but when you say that, you know, the ones that are in the fjords, could they be the key to maybe preserving a lot of the genetic diversity that we would like to see in the future?
1: It's also likely that the climates are a bit different mm-hmm. um, up in those more like, fjord or inlet areas, the mm-hmm. water is probably a lot uh, w- warmer mm-hmm. than out in the more exposed areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it could be possible that some of the differentiation does potentially relate to adaptations mm-hmm. that might help, help adapt to warming conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have any evidence uh, of that yet, but that's definitely something we want to look for. Or alternatively, they might just be very small populations that um, are actually really struggling and it's possible they're they're too small and haven't really been able to adapt very well. So we'll try to, um, that's one thing we really want to figure out is whether um, these slightly different populations really are maybe the key to adapting to warmer conditions or they're really just kind of not doing well and don't show much promise for long-term survival.
0: It's definitely a place to keep an eye on the research because it sounds like pretty exciting information either way. So now, as we kind of are wrapping up, what is one of the main takeaways of your research? We've talked about genetic diversity, you know, changing climate, different populations. What is something you would like listeners to remember about kelp genetics?
1: I think you summarized it fairly well there, but I'll just say that not all kelp populations are the same. Understanding how populations are genetically different will be helpful to manage them most effectively for conservation and restoration.
0: Beautifully put. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Jordan. Really enjoyed talking to you and hearing about the kelp genome, and learning a little bit more about these incredible ecosystems. Uh, It's been
1: a pleasure, and thank you for having me.
0: Fights Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode
1: Island.